Our God and Father, we thank you that we can um, approach you with security, that you are open to hear our prayers, and that you love us enough to give us your word and accessibility to it, that we may continue to grow in a saving knowledge of our eternal destiny. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jason Wallace. I know I know some of you. I'm a professor at Sanford University. I'm a member here of the of the church, and um, I, I pinch hit occasionally when uh, uh, other folks are, are are out of town and such. And uh, one of the one of the topics I I was asked to, to think about was well, good morning was the Reformation, and 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 I, and I have three Sundays, so I said you know that's that's the Reformation is a big subject. I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to do that in three Sundays, and that's a lifetime of of cultivating uh, understanding. But uh, what we after talking with some of the leadership, what we decided on is it, is let's look at some of the major figures of the Reformation, particularly as they play into the Anglican Communion. Uh, and that's what we want to do over the course of today and the next two Sundays. And we don't simply want to do this in terms of biography. Uh, that, that's interesting, and that's, it, it has its place, and, and I certainly can recommend biography to you. But I'd like to do this more in terms of the theology, the implications for our theology, what it means today. How, how, how does this translate across the centuries into, well, what does it mean to say I'm in the Anglican Communion today? And uh, this is a particular concern right now, as we know that the Anglican, commun- Anglican Communion, the last decade, perhaps longer, has struggled with its identity, its leadership, and its vision for the future. It's divided right now. And that's not a secret. And uh, the, uh, but but what we also know, uh, I think, and we trust, is the word of God is sure. It is uh, reliable, and we have ancestors in the faith who probably aren't as sure and re- as reliable, especially if we look at their biographies. <laughs> but nevertheless, they've given us uh, help uh, and interpretation. None of us are born. Uh, getting it all. We, we lean on other people and we lean on communities of faith and these communities of faith have come before us and today I want to talk about one aspect of that as in the theology of Martin Luther and what Martin Luther contributed to our community of faith in uh, his theology. Again, not so much biography as theology here. Uh, I'd start out with a question. Why are you a Protestant? What are you protesting? You may, <laughs> you may not be. Uh, and that's, o- that, that's okay, too. Um, but if you are a Protestant, what exactly do you get up and say, well, the protest must go on, you know, tomorrow morning. And Monday's always the day that, to get the energy for a protest. <laughs> uh, they, probably not. Probably not. We've, there's not a self-consciousness generally about being a Protestant or a Catholic or, or, or any other identity uh, at this point in history. Uh, sometimes there are those reflective moments. 
I don't doubt that. But in general, we don't get up every day and think, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm so, so oh, tired of protesting this thing, that, you know, the, the Pope or what. Generally, we don't do that. But, but we are. That is the, the nomenclature. That is the label. If you are a Protestant, you have taken on the moniker of a protester. Um, or let me, to put it differently, you have inherited the moniker of a protester, whether you're self-conscious of it or not. And getting at uh, Luther helps us understand what exactly we mean when, when, when we're protesting and, and what we say what, what, when, we, when we say we're Protestant. To understand Luther, you have to understand the world that he believed in, the world that he lived in. This would be the world of late, the late Middle Ages and what we also call the Renaissance period. And the question that would, have, the theological question that would have been relevant in the late Middle Ages, as relevant as it is right now as you sit here is, how do I get right with God? Not a lot of metaphysical speculation going on in the sense of later modern developments. You know, is there a God? Or you know, what if there's not a God? Or how do we, you know, postmodern type stuff. We're pretty much living in a world where there is a God and there is, uh, it's, a, it's an assumed belief. But the question of salvation is still pertinent. It's still burdensome. How do you get right with God? I mean, we're going to die. What does it mean to have a soul? What does it mean for the soul to have continuity with eternity? This was just as prescient and important for someone living in the late 1400s as it is for us today. The answer, though, was very clear. Because the answer, if you lived in Western Europe, came through the authority of the church. Not churches, right? Uh, not the Methodists, they're later, but the, uh, but the Catholic Church, the Roman Church, okay? And uh, in particular, what the, the Roman Church said is that the way you get right with God is through the system we've worked out that you participate in to know him. For your soul to be united with him. It's a very hopeful message. It's very hopeful. And what we call this system, what it was known as, is the sacramental system. Sacramental theology. Right? It's tied to the markers that you participate in that make you a Christian, to put it simply. Okay? So I'm throwing these categories out, and I'm happy to, to slow it down. But let's, let's, let's dig a little deeper, okay? Because it, that's, that's fair and good to say, okay, participate in these things, and you will be saved, right? Know these things, believe these things, you will be saved. But what does it mean? Well, what, 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 what's it tied to? It's tied to something even deeper. It's tied to an even more profound problem. Because the late medieval church didn't just wake up and say, let's invent this. Right? The church has been around for 1,500 years. That's a long time, a millennia and a half. Since the apostolic era, a lot has happened. 
and the church has undergone a lot and a lot of a lot of leadership changes and that type of stuff. Even Rome itself hadn't had the primacy and the the dignity that it had had the last say 400 years. By the time you get to Luther, it's very divided in some ways. But yet, they held to this developmental system of sacramental theology. Know this sacramental theology, know God. What's it, what, it, what was this tied to? Well, it's tied to, to, to kind of just let's, the spade work of theology. <clears throat> Why is it that we have to get right with God, to put it crassly? Why? I mean, nobody wants to jump in here, but it's, it's because we're fallen. Right? We're fallen. Okay, we all, we're living in the late Middle Ages. We can all agree with that. We're fallen. We're alienated from God somehow. Our souls are. The essence of the, of the apple and the serpent story. Right? We're separated from God. We're alienated through the fall. Sin has alienated us. But what the church taught... And again, this was developmental over many centuries. The church taught that when we were created, we were created such to please God. We weren't created fallen. We were created such that we could please God. Okay? And they, get, they had a word for this. And it, it's a nice Latin phrase, actually. The donum superadditum. Right? <laughs> the donum superadditum. It sounds like a vitamin, but it's it's a it, what it what it's the it's the good it's the it's the super gift, and the super gift that we were given at creation is the ability to please God. Okay. But what happens? We sin. Adam and Eve sin. Okay. The historical entrance of sin changes that ability to please God. Okay, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding this. We can no longer please God. So the question is, once the donum superadditum is lost, once that gift is lost, how is it recovered? How do you then again please God? How are you going to be able to enter sacramental theology? Enter the theology of the sacraments. How do you participate in the church to have that gift restored. The ability to please God brought back. Okay. Now, in Luther's time, the church held, and this was not official. It's a, it's a little strange to think about. This wasn't official doctrine, but it was, in, it was received doctrine. That there were seven sacraments. That there were seven sacraments of the church. Just an aside, a parenthetical, this teaching alone we don't believe was even really solidified until the 900s. The seven sacraments of the church. Students always ask, well, when did the, you know, did, did uh, the, the last apostle die and the next thing you know you have seven sacraments? No. <laughs> Over time, the church had decided that there were seven sacraments tied to this system of how we get right with God. Doing it, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper is what many Protestants call it. Penance. Hold that one in your mind. Extreme unction or the the uh, the blessing at death. 
Okay? And then the two others we're going to not talk are marriage and holy orders. Okay? These seven sacraments, these seven sacramental uh, avenues of participation in the life of the church are what marked you as a Christian in the late medieval world. You did these things. You, you did them against your will. You were born into them. You know, Dad dug sweet potatoes, right? Or, or, or I don't know, whatever you did, you were, whether uh, the, the, the child of a, of a nobleman or, the, or impoverished, you were born into this system. And it's through this system that that, that gift is restored, you see. That ability to please God is restored through this system. You're baptized and grace is given. Confirmation confers grace. You following me? Okay. The Eucharist confers grace. Grace is restored in you through participating in these things. And there is a there's a nice uh, phrase for this that uh, the church had called infusion. Grace is infused back into you. All right, grace is infused. It is it's simply what infusion means. It, it, I don't know. I'm, I'm off. I'm out of. You infuse a turkey with. Uh, I mean. Uh, I, I, <laughs> But you, you, I'm trying to think of an example of infusion besides theology. But in, 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 you, you put something back into something, right? And you infuse it. But remember I told you to hold that one penance. Because this is the one that our friend Luther is going to, is, is, is going to trip on. What happens when you participate in all these things and you're a good Christian? You're a good late medieval Christian. But you still sin. You're still guilty. You don't do right. And even if you do right, you don't think right. And even when you're thinking right, there are moments you don't think right. You get the point. Right? The domino effect of, of that recognition, that tripping and recognition. I'm not there. I'm guilty. <coughs> Enter the doctrine of penance, because penance, penitential, the system of penitential um, participation in the sacraments, was a way that you could come back to grace. All right, and it was an elaborate structure tied to this, because what it what it essentially said is that, look, you're infused with grace through the church. Christ's benefits are there. And basically what the church does is it takes those benefits and gives them back to you. Penance is one more way that we do this. But obviously we're talking about a holy God here who cannot be satisfied in any way other than perfection. So you're going to have to do something to make up this deficit in your character. You're going to have to serve penance to translate what should be those eternal punishments for every thought, deed, spoken and unspoken, demands an eternal punishment. 
How does it translate into right now so you can keep on living in grace? That's penance. This make sense? That's penance. That's what you have to do. So the church can translate. It can take that punishment and translate it into a temporal punishment that you perform on behalf of your soul. <clears throat> this, another phrase, again, that you would have been familiar with at this time period is called the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit. What Jesus Christ accomplished was sufficient for your salvation. Don't mistake it. Okay? But the way that benefit is given to you is mediated through the sacraments. Okay? Including penance. So that treasury of merit, it's like all these rewards are sitting here. All the benefits of Christ are sitting here, but somehow it's got to get to you. Right? How does it do that? How does Christ's benefit bring you back to God? This is late medieval theology. It does it through these sacraments. And in particular, when you continue to sin, the merit, this is, that's the absence of virtue. When you sin, you're not being virtuous. You're not living the way Christ would have you live. So you have to be infused again with God's grace. Penance is the way this is done. Martin Luther was born and raised in this system of thinking, as every other European would have been. And indeed, he becomes an Augustinian monk in this late medieval world. But Luther is a nervous man. Luther is a man of deep anxiety. We would call him anxious today, right? If Luther today, we would give him an SSRI and send him home. You know, we would let, let him give him something to calm him down. And, but because Luther's constantly, he he's, he's, he really is burdened about, am I right? And that's not an unfair question. I don't think it should be a caricature either. And I think we tend to caricature it. <coughs> Luther realizes I can do all these things. But I still feel very scared of God. And there's a good reason. Luther, uh, as he developed as a monk, he eventually, I, I think, they were, his, his, over, um, the, uh, his monastic oversight was, look, you just need to go study theology and become a professor, which he did not think he should do. He did, uh, though, and he ended up becoming a professor of Old Testament. And... Again, let's avoid the caricature. You read Leviticus. You read Numbers. We're talking about a holy God. We're talking, this is something very frightening and terrifying that Luther saw in God. A consuming God. Right? Don't touch the ark kind of God. Luther saw this, and he, he lived in fear and trembling. He, he could never feel assured that everything was okay, and he pursued it. And he, he pursued it uh, from the time he became a professor at Wittenberg right up until the inauguration of the, the actual, what we mark as the Reformation. He began a very intensive uh, Bible study 
trying to figure out where you find this assurance with God. In particular, he read Psalms, Romans, and Galatians were the three big influences on him. So hold that for just a moment. Because as Luther is trying to figure out this, well, wait a minute, how am I right? How do I have stability? Where is hope, right? As he's trying to figure this out, at the same time, the church had gotten quite fanciful with its understanding of penance. And it had, well, let's just put it this way, it developed, it had, Rome had undergone a very big church growth project, right, where they're going to add on. And they were trying to figure out how to pay for this. And one of the ways uh, that they developed in the late, four, really through the 1400s, was a system called the indulgence, a kind of tax on the soul related to penance, related to the sacrament of penance. Remember, penance is that contrition. It's repentance. You have to do something to turn away from that sin, to change that merit that you deserve and to receive the, the right merit of grace. The indulgence essentially tied money to this, right? Pe instead of actually having to do penance, okay, where you go through particular rituals of contrition, now you can pay penance off. It's a hideous system. Uh, it's one that the Council of Trent rectified tremendously a few, a few decades later. But, and, and, and Martin Luther wasn't the first one to find this offensive. Lots of folks did, especially in Northern Europe, who sat around saying, why are we paying for something down in Italy that we'll never use, you know? And uh, despite the misgivings with it, uh, as you know, with any bureaucracy, and in the cultural forms that a bureaucracy can take and the complications it can take, uh, it's not always easy, and history teaches us that. It gets real messy sometimes. We think, ah, oh, well, that, that's obviously wrong. Luther, having worked very hard to reconcile this problem of guilt before God, had come to, through the years 1515 to 1517, a different understanding of this question of merit. In particular, in Romans 3 and Romans 8, which I'll read before we leave today. And Galatians chapter 3 as well. Luther came to the conclusion that this treasury of merit, this idea that Christ's benefits are infused to us, mediated through the papacy and the offices of the papacy, is false. That this cannot be true. That Christ's benefits must be ours in another way. Otherwise, not only do we have no surety, but the text itself is wrong. Remember, this is the age of the Renaissance and the new humanism. So take, for example, Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, 
he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. That word "credited to" is critical because that is that is precisely with this question of merit. How is credit built? Where you're good for it? That's what the whole sacramental system hinged on. Um, Romans 8 as well, uh, chapter 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death, from what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit and then in Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 consider Abraham he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness understanding that those who believe are children of Abraham the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance of Abraham. What Luther saw here is that what Paul, what Paul had written did not line up with what the church was teaching. The text and the tradition were not meeting correctly. He very adamantly insisted that one authority has to govern the other. Okay? And his opportunity to bring this to, uh, to a public challenge came in 1517. When the, a, a papal legate, Tetzel was his name, a German papal legate, a representative of the papacy, who was German, came, he, went, he actually didn't go into Wittenberg, he was outside of Wittenberg, and, but he came to collect on the indulgence. And this is, of course, the famous moment where we're not exactly sure what happened, but Luther posted something. He, it went public, his, his thesis went public on why I think this system is wrong. And he did this based upon this question of authority. His point being, and he said it in several, he said it in, in several moments through this early Reformation. I'm not trying to undermine, he wasn't trying to undermine the papacy. Indeed, he, he said I could respect the office of Rome. But ultimately, this, the treasury of merit and the merits of Christ cannot be dispensed through that office. That the merits of Christ are given by God to the believer through the Holy Spirit. And they are confirmed through the Holy Spirit. And that the merits of Christ are not infused you're not infused with Christ's righteousness over time, but you are imputed with Christ's righteousness. The imputation of Christ brings the merits of Christ into you eternally, once and for all. And Luther said, that's it. That's what Paul teaches. That's consistent with Scripture. And what we're doing is not right. We don't have to change everything, but that's got to change. Now, like most people thrown into the 
when we look back, we can see he was the whirlwind had already begun and, and forces were being unleashed in Europe that couldn't be held back. But in 1517, this is what Luther declared. And he was considered obstinate. He was considered problematic. He was considered just an annoying monk up there in Germany. And uh, he was brought down to Augsburg to, um, uh, to face uh, you know, papal court there where he, he was a little bit concerned they were going to kidnap him and take him to Rome and if they could just get him to Rome, et cetera. It's, it's real high drama and it's fun stuff to read historically speaking, but theologically speaking, in terms of where we are today, this is huge. Because this question of imputation versus infusion, this question of merit, this question of how you're made right with God is why you are a Protestant, like I began the class. That's what you're protesting. There's a whole host of issues that go along with this that subsequently will develop. The authority of the papacy, for example the relationship between law and gospel, for example. These are coming. In 1520, indeed, he writes his most famous treatises on, the, on, on these issues that, that we still, you know, you can still read in a college class today or, or such. But right here at the beginning, this is the issue. And it's still the issue. How do I know I'm okay? You know you're okay not because the church has told you you're okay and not because the, you have participated in any particular thing that the church offers to you. You're okay because Christ really and historically made you okay. So when the justification by faith, the sola fide of the Reformation, the very first issue that tripwired this whole thing, and remember, he doesn't see the future where all this is going, Luther. The sola fide, the faith is not I'm justified because I believe better or stronger. Or if you look down deep and squeeze hard, it's there. The faith is the conduit, the bridge that takes you to the anchor, the permanent fixed thing that is Christ. The faith is what God gifts so that you can know that the merits of Christ are your security. And you can stop struggling. You can stop fearing. You can stop the anxiety. Not, again, I throw that out knowing all the difficulties that go with that. But in terms of your eternal security, Christ has accomplished it once and for all. It's not a, um, a cup that has to be refilled. It's not something you meet halfway. The accomplishment of Christ and the imputation of Christ satisfies the justice of God. So what Luther feared, rightly, was an angry, wrathful Yahweh of the Old Testament. And he perceptively saw that how can this God love me? It doesn't. It, it, it doesn't. It, it's a, somebody asked me one time, and it was a casual conversation. It, well, what's the, you know, they were naming books there, like Stephen King books, or, you know, what's the scariest book you've read? What's the scariest movie? I said Leviticus. I mean, I, I, was, I was absolutely convinced. You laughed. They just all fucked up. But, I mean, the, 
but but you know really you know you think how this is impossible and it's crazy and I'm scared and I'm not going to move <laughs> and and that's exactly where Luther found himself and others before him as well Huss and Wycliffe and such but what he saw is in that fear and in that anxiety and in that terror of the soul having to face a wrathful God that there was love and there was mercy and there was permanent and fixed peace in Christ and what Christ had done. The merits of Christ are once and for all sufficient for all eternity to bring your soul into a relationship with God. And that is the beginning of the Reformation. That the sacramental theology of the church is fundamentally flawed. And guess what? In 2012, on August the 12th, that's exactly what the difference is today between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. It's a, it's, it's a gulf of enormity for all my friends and loved ones and others that are in the Catholic faith and um, for all the, the challenging theology of the Catholic Church which, and, and, the, and, and, the, and the beauty that, that it brings, there's still this fundamental issue. There's still this fundamental, no matter how creative we get in, a, in, a, in the United States with our open free churches to, and, and uh, people starting you know, clubs in their garage to do this, that, or the other, no matter how free we are to pursue uh, the different avenues of theology that are out there, this is the most fundamental issue of Christendom right here. How are we made right with God? Is it infusion or is it imputation? Is it a treasury of merit that exists and is mediated? Or is it the full merit that is given to you through the bridge of faith and the sure reliance of God's promise? Questions? Comments? Booze? I blame Luther. If <laughs> no, sir, any, any thoughts on this? Yes, sir. Um, I read a fascinating book a few years ago about the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And you touched on it briefly, but the, kind of the thesis of this book was that even though all this stuff was wrong, it was really the, the indulgences, which was it Julius II who yes. raised the first basilica and said, we're going to build St. Yes. Peter's. Yes. And they quickly went broke and he said, we've got to figure out yes. a way to pay for this. Yes. So now we're going to start charging money for it. Yeah. Or yeah, he would have been a great fine. congressman. He just, that was really yeah. the part, right? That's right. No, no, you're 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 dead on it. St. Peter's was. I don't know if you. So I guess my question yeah, is, with, without St. Peter's and that whole big construction project they needed to pay for, how much would it, how long would it have taken this to go on? It would have. It, it, it was. It was already. I think the the problem was already there. <clears throat> With the divided pape, when the pa the papacy had already fallen into disrepute through a lot of Europe, back when the Avignon split took place, and you're supposed to have one seat of Saint Peter who's carrying on this apostolic tradition, but we got one in southern France and we got one in Rome, 
And I think you had a lot of people in Northern Europe just rolling their eyes and saying, forget about it. Um, so there's already, a, a, I think there's a, there's a credibility gap that has developed by the early 14, late 1300s, early 1400s. The, the Renaissance moves, the, the, the gaudiness of it, I don't know if anybody's ever been, it's just an astounding, it's the largest church in the world, I mean, and it's just, you know, um, I, I told somebody yesterday, I was talking to him about why I'm a Protestant, and I just said, you know, look, the, the bottom line is you guys have all the special effects on your side. <laughs> if you go to Rome or go to Europe, you know, and, or even here, you, know, you, you win when it comes to special effects and technicolor. Um, uh, we're pretty vanilla. Um, but uh, yes, and then they, they could not figure out how to pay for it. They had, they had really overbuilt, uh, because St. Peter's before that was not as, as beautiful as it is now. Some would say that the theology of the Reformation is kind of uh, revisiting the theology that Augustine had established for the church, yeah. that salvation by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Um, how, how, much, how, would you, how much of that would you say is an accurate statement, that Luther was just reestablishing what was the, you yeah. know, the apostolic theology and the theology from the um, Augustinian age for several centuries? I think it is accurate. You know, he one the communion he the the orders he took were Augustinian, so he is an Augustinian monk, and he 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 took on that title. I think it is. I think it's very accurate. Augustine's one of those figures, though. You can find what you want in him, right? I mean, you can go back and look and see where Augustine, for instance, venerates Mary, or something like that. You know. Um, and say, aha, you can play the aha moment with Augustine. Well, we, you know, we, we got him there. I think overall, though, Augustine is, the, in the early Middle Ages, he is our Pauline scholar. He is the, the theologian who brings Paul into the West for us on this side of Europe and the Atlantic. And I think Luther is picking right up with that. I, when, I, when I had studied church history um, in the seminary classes, that was one of the more eye-opening things for me, because I had this idea that the, you know, yeah. the Catholic Church yeah. had, you know, had always been this way, this yeah. works righteousness theology, Not at all. and then Luther brought this whole new idea, yeah. where the reality is he was bringing something that had been it, it would make a good, aside for a short time. It'd make a good class, but Augustine's debate with Pelagius were the first ones, where he took on this doctrine uh, th this problem of merit and law and gospel early on. And um, uh, no, the, the, the Catholic Church has not spoken univocally through the centuries. And I think that's very important to remember. It has been divided before the Reformation. Yes? Um, I was just wondering if Luther had a problem with the veneration of Mary, too. Not at first. Not at first, he didn't. And that's what's so interesting to read the different, you know, scholars who, who study Luther. He changed. He changed over time. Uh, and he changed quickly. But between 1570 and 1530, he, he went through a lot of changes himself. I, I think he, he didn't have a roadmap for what he was doing. And he went through some evolution himself in terms of what he believed. Of course, he eventually married an ex-nun. That's convenient. And um, 
and, and he denied vehemently he was uh, revolutionary. He, he did not like that when the, the peasants' revolt broke out in 1523 in Germany against the nobles, they, they did so on the basis that they, they used Luther as their leader, saying, you know, it's kind of a Marxist argument, overthrow the, the redistribute, well, Luther condemned them worse than he ever did the Pope, so. Yes, sir. How, how do you, would the Catholic Church respond to some of those scriptures that you read from Romans and Galatians? And, I mean, what's, I hate to say their spin, but how would they interpret that to work within their notion of infusion? Um, they would suggest that you have isolated Romans and Galatians apart from other uh, passages of scripture that talk about works specifically James, and uh, Protestants are choosing selectively what they want to read. Um, let me, I'll quickly add, and maybe we can pick up this with Calvin next week, Protestants have an understanding of works. Protestants have an understanding of the law. It's just not that. It's a question of justification and sanctification. Yeah. But this had to develop. Calvin's our man for that. He really helps us see that development a lot. Um, but I think that would be the superficial answer off the top of my head. So. I think we're done here. But please, next week we'll do Calvin. We'll start with Calvin next week. So um, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. So. Thank you.